Fantastic. Yeah. Let's, uh, yeah, I'm again, kind of just going with, uh, with however the spirit leads us. So, uh, so yeah. Um, so, Hey, uh, welcome to Indigenesis. Uh, this is our sixth seminar of uh, light the way. Um, so Indigenesis, I, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. It, as you know, we love playing around with the, with the term uh, Genesis uh, at St. Matt's. So um, journey through Genesis, and now we have Indigenesis, but not only into the book of Genesis, but understanding how indigenous peoples relate um, to, the, uh, to the construction of Eden in Christian culture. Um, just the very concept of Eden, uh, as we all understand, is kind of like the primordial um, state of humanity, you know, the very first state of humanity, the, the original unadulterated, un, unblemished by sin form of creation that God had put forward on the earth, right? And understanding the way that um, the early commandments of God connect to this paradigm in Christianity, I think is very vitally important to understanding just the concept of stewardship theology and environmental theology as a whole, but um, also understanding why it is so important for us as non-Indigenous peoples to um, ally ourselves in the causes of Indigenous peoples to protect their livelihoods. Uh, but going forward, So as you can see right over here, we have a quick outline for today. Um, so just take a quick look at it, but of course it's gonna be very straightforward, very linear. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll be able to get through it. I think um, with uh, an hour, including some discussion time might be a little bit over though, cause we're kind of covering a lot of fundamentals all at once, but anyhow, let's get right into the substance of our seminar today. All right. Bonjour, Kenya Nichiwuk, Sheldon Parthundil and Dishnikas, Greetings, all my friends, in the name of Jesus Christ. My name is Sheldon Parthundil. I come from Brampton, Ontario, in the territory of Upper Canada Treaty Number 18. Um, I wish to acknowledge that I share this knowledge with you as a guest on the sovereign territory of the Mississauga Anishinaabek Nation. And as a result, I wanted to introduce myself to you in the traditional language of this uh, territory, Anishinaabemwe. Um, so I, myself, as a background, just introduced to you as is typical um, in sessions where um, Indigenous knowledge will be discussed. I want you to understand who I am as an individual. Um, I've been a member of St. Matthew's Martha Church since uh, I was, well, right from the beginning. I was three years old when the church was founded. Um, and... Um, uh, this this uh, society has been very, very important for me growing up, um, but, you know, I, I've taken the experience I've had within our community and kind of gone forward to study um, a Bachelor of Public Affairs and Policy Management at Carleton. Uh, and what I studied there, namely, is Indigenous legal orders and Indigenous political economy. So um, kind of understanding how Indigenous societies um, and their culture um, informs the way um, uh, their entire society is structured, how law, politics, society, culture, environment, and economics all interact in indigenous communities. That's kind of what legal orders is. And um, political economy, of course, necessarily understanding the structure of how a political society and an economy are constructed. So, you know, obviously we always talk a lot about indigenous peoples. You must hear a lot of uh, indigenous content on the news, but very few people um, really take the time to delve in, I guess, to understand what indigenous peoples and their societies look like from the inside. So I've worked with the indigenous communities now um, pretty much since my grade 12 year. Um, 
taken part in a wide variety of demonstrations in favor of sovereignty. Um, I took part in uh, the reoccupation movement uh, around Canada 150 that was pushing for the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And as a result, you know, I've kind of made um, Indigenous activism a very big part of my academic and professional life. Um, so yeah, I'm just here to share with you guys a, a little bit of uh, what, what is very passionate on my heart and how it relates um, to another deep passion in my own heart and my faith. Um, so, without any further ado, uh, can I please ask one of our friends here to lead us in an opening prayer? Sure. Oh Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, allowing us to come together here today, oh Lord, to talk about um, this issue that, um, uh, that that's all in our hearts and minds, oh Lord, about Indigenous issues, oh Lord. I pray that you help Sheldon as he guides us through this knowledge, oh Lord. I pray that you speak through him throughout this um, seminar, seminar, oh Lord. All this I pray in your wonderful name, amen. Amen. Thanks very much, Ruben. All right, let's get onto our next page. So let's um, discuss by breaking down some colonial myths here. So um, as is often seen in, in textbooks, in our schools, um, in public discourse in our society, there is a lot of colonial discourse around what exactly indigenous peoples and their societies are. Um, it's a lot of the same discourse that was leveled at our ancestors in our native countries. Um, but, you know, just to break down a few of them and to explain exactly why um, the way we talk about Indigenous people is, is very much rooted in, um, in, in, in a system of thinking that erases their identity and who they are as peoples. So in European eyes, when Europeans first landed in um, the Americas, uh, they perceived the indigenous peoples as having no laws, society, government, or concept of property ownership that was worth respecting. Um, essentially, the early European form of sovereignty that was laid out in the 1500s um, by the Pope essentially stated that in order for people to be treated as full human beings by European powers, they needed to be ruled by European rulers practicing a recognized Christian faith. Ironically, this was also used to negate um, the personhood of Protestants um, throughout Europe um, and their right to have their own, um, you know, communities, simply because the recognized Christianity, the form of Christianity was under the Pope of Rome. Um, and it also was uh, used to dehumanize and infantilize and essentially remove the sovereignty of Orthodox people as well in the East, um, such as, you know, Arab communities, Assyrian communities, Armenians, um, so, you know, this is, again, the very foundational basis, the, the concept of what it is to be a person at this point in time was very, very narrow. But essentially, the Pope passed a papal bull, so a, uh, like, like a, like, sort of like an executive order from the Pope, um, that labeled all land that was not governed by people who were white by race and Christian by faith, Catholic by faith, as terra nullius. Now, terra nullius quite literally means in Latin, no man's land. So, Essentially, whoever, whatever of these peoples who were non-Europeans, non-Christians who lived on this land did not possess any right to own it because they were not recognized as full people. So as a result, this essentially justified European people coming to this land, colonizing it, um, killing and destroying the local indigenous societies and taking it for themselves. Um, so this is very much contrast to the indigenous way of seeing subsistence and coexistence on a piece of territory. Um, indigenous peoples do not perceive the land as something to be owned. If anything, people are owned by the land. 
you know, um, if you talk with indigenous elders, for example, at, at pretty much any public um, uh, powwow or an indigenous gathering in this country, you will hear people always discuss this notion that it's not necessarily our land, but it's that we belong to the land. The land doesn't belong to us, we belong to the land. You know, it's very closely connected to this language of motherland and, you know, fatherland that a lot of countries outside of the indigenous sphere connect to, but essentially this maternal paternal relationship um, with the people who belong to a particular country is exactly how indigenous peoples relate to their home territories. Um, so this notion that indigenous peoples are uncivilized or backward, this is entirely wrong. You know, indigenous peoples had fully functioning systems of law, society, advanced forms of government. I mean, um, the Iroquois uh, peoples um, or Haudenosaunee as they're known in their own language, um, who own the piece, uh, who legally own the rights to the piece of land that you see on your screen in front of you, the Hull Diamond Tract. Um, they, their um, political system known as the Great Law of Peace was actually one of the foundational influences on the American constitution. That's right. Most global forms of republicanism directly derive their system of democracy from indigenous peoples. And that is, uh, you know, again, it just it just underpins this this very notion that uh, indigenous peoples have been foundational in the global political order. This notion that indigenous peoples were simply disparate tribes who warred and fought all of these rumors of cannibalism, things like that. Um, I hate to break this to you, but they are all myths that are advanced to you by European textbooks. There is minimal um, you know, social uh, evidence to, social and archeological evidence to suggest that indigenous peoples um, practiced anything other than advanced social organization and had developed the same basic technologies as most people around the world. Um, the same sort of thing exists with the notion that there is such a thing as an, an indigenous culture. Um, indigenous peoples of the Americas practice a wide variety of cultural norms. Now, I speak here um, when I talk about indigeneity in sort of general terms, just kind of like how indigenous peoples form one current, one large cultural sphere is it's a very similar way to how all Indians belong to one cultural sphere. You know, um, Tamils, Malayalis, Bengalis, Punjabis, there are certain cultural elements that are common to all Indian nations, but um, each of them are distinct in and of themselves and they have different practices, different cultural norms, or for example, all Europeans. Um, this, another uh, big myth to break down as well is that indigenous people were conquered. This is not true. Um, Canada was not colonized by means of war. There was no individual war that indigenous peoples lost and they lost the right to Canada's land. How Canada was settled was by a long process called the treaty making process. Um, a wide variety, hundreds and hundreds of treaties, meaning legal, um, legal arrangements, legal documents, were created between Europeans and indigenous peoples. And it is through the breaking of these treaties, um, when, when indigenous peoples would agree to a treaty of peace and friendship with Europeans who came to land on this, um, on this territory, um, Europeans would sign these, um, these treaties in order to prevent war until adequate military forces were there for them um, and then once they had enough power to defeat local nations, they would simply break the treaties and steal the land. Um, now, this, now, every single treaty in Canada has been broken at least once. Um, in fact, I believe all of them have been broken multiple times. And huge swaths of Canada are still not covered by any treaty, uh, meaning if non-Indigenous peoples have settled or have taken ownership of that land, that ownership of that land is technically illegal occupation. They have no legal right to own that land. Because as some of you may know, um, 
owning land in this country is essentially a perpetual lease on that land from the Crown of Canada. Um, the monarch of Canada is technically the owner of all land that is owned by, that is under the government of Canada. And we as landowners essentially purchase perpetual leases from the government. We really don't technically own any land, if you want to look at the legal technicality of things. Um, but any of that land that we are allowed to own has to be bought by the government from Indigenous peoples. Um, however, that is the standard, uh, the legal standard that needs to be followed, but that has almost never happened. Uh, since 1763, that legal standard has been put into very firm um, legal language in Canada's constitution, no less. However, because of a lack of willingness to enforce that in courts, um, mainly because Indigenous people could not bring court challenges for several hundred years of Canadian history, um, and uh, Indigenous peoples were, I mean, simply discriminated against by white lawyers and white judges. Um, as a result, you know, this system of legal protection for Indigenous peoples has been very, very difficult to um, engage with and to protect Indigenous culture. And finally, the fourth colonial, or the um, well, yeah, the fourth colonial myth I want to address here is that Indigenous peoples are a typical subject group or a minority group within Canada. Um, indigenous peoples are legally not Canadians. Um, in fact, a lot of Indigenous peoples find it quite offensive to be uh, called Canadian, simply because it negates the fact that Indigenous peoples are all independent sovereign nations. Legally speaking, according to the Constitution, Indigenous peoples can use Canadian passports, they can use government services, etc., because the Canadian state exists on their land. However, Indigenous peoples still possess their own national sovereignty, meaning if you walk onto an Indigenous reserve, you are technically in another country. Um, again, we share certain institutions, we share certain documents that allow us to tra traverse those boundaries without having to go through all of the hassles of crossing international borders. But effectively, um, all of these small areas are tiny, there, there are 634 little independent countries within Canada. Um, so because all of these treaties have been broken, you know, this, this notion that Indigenous peoples um, exist in the modern day is, is something that is quite rare in our culture. We often talk about Indigenous peoples as existing in the past, you know, uh, the period of, of having uh, indigenous sovereignty over land, indigenous control over the land, um, rights to hunt, to fish, to trap and to farm, uh, the rights to practice cultural heritage and traditions. These things are always Five percent of Canada is still Indigenous peoples, um, both First Nations, meaning uh, a variety of over 25 different nations that exist across the country, um, and Inuit people and Métis people who are part Indigenous and part European. Um, and they are spread kind of all over the country um, and exist in a wide variety of legal relationships with the government of Canada and with us by extension. Um, so this whole notion, uh, Indigenous people often describe this concept as all of us being treaty people. Now, a treaty is a bilateral agreement, meaning two different parties make a treaty together. It creates certain um, reciprocal obligations, as you would put into legal terms, or sort of duties that we owe to one another. Um, and when a treaty is signed, there are certain duties we have to... Um, that committed us to each other as military allies. 
Similarly, the Canadian army is, and again, this has not particularly been well enforced. In fact, the Canadian army has been mobilized against indigenous people many times, but the Canadian army is also by law supposed to be an organization that protects indigenous territories from invasion. Now, um, you know, and a perfect example of how the treaties have been broken and violated over the years um, is right here on your screen. So um, what you see here, um, this large green piece of land is an area known as the Hull Diamond Tract. Now this covers 950,000 acres of land. Now that's almost 3000 square kilometers. It's the size of a small country. Um, and this land was given in 1784 by Frederick Hull Diamond, who is um, a military governor from the British Army uh, in what is now Ontario. Um, and this land was provided to the six nations of the Grand River community who still exist today. Um, however, this massive swath of territory, as you can see, all of Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, Brantford, a good portion of um, exterior rural Hamilton, and uh, you know, a little bit around the territory of Guelph, Orangeville, and parts of Dufferin County, all are covered under the Hull Diamond Tract as indigenous reserve land. However, because of long processes of residential schooling, which deprived indigenous people of the right to own land on reserve, um, the process of linguistic assimilation, you don't speak your language, you don't practice your traditional religion, your traditional culture, you have no connection to your land. As a result, over the past 200 odd years, all of the area of the Hull Diamond Tract has been expropriated and stolen by the government and turned into settlement area. And the tiny little orange space that you see right now, just under Brantford and uh, between the towns of Brantford and Caledonia, um, the uh, reserve is now known as Oshwaken. Uh, this is, and, and this too being one of the largest reserve territories in the country um, is, a, is a very tiny sliver of what the original endowment was. It's now only about 48,000 acres. Um, so, you know, again, this is a very visual a reminder of what it's been like for indigenous peoples living under crown rule in Canada, gradually having their rights, their culture, their language uh, whittled away. Now, what exactly is the purpose of colonization? Why did we bother to, uh, you know, well, perhaps not we directly, but our state, our Canadian state, why has it bothered to undermine indigenous peoples in this way? Well, it's a very simple answer. With indigenous peoples being recognized by European law, they would have legal, we have certain legal obligations to them, legal duties to them. And if we fail to recognize them as equivalent and valuable to our form of government, we can simply steal their land. We can simply ignore their laws. And we can simply take the natural resources that their lands um, play host to for our own purposes. And I mean, Canada is a great example of that. Huge portions of indigenous territories that were never given by indigenous peoples to the crown are simply have, you know, trucks drive right onto them and engage in logging practices without the consent of indigenous peoples. You know, again, this is um, this is the perhaps the the darker side of Canada that a lot, that a lot of people are not really uh, visible uh, to all of the time. But um, this is a, a very unfortunate and sad reality that the overwhelming majority of Indigenous people live with. So now, what is the relationship, though? What 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 does co-sovereignty look like? What what does sovereignty even mean? You're probably wondering these things. I mean, we all know national sovereignty, the whole notion of national sovereignty being something that protects your borders from people from other countries. Um, but what is the notion of co-sovereignty? What does it mean when two groups, two political bodies share sovereignty over a given area? 
Now, this relationship is enshrined in what is known as the two-row wampum. Now, this agreement, which is symbolized by the white, uh, the white flag with the two purple stripes on it, um, is enshrined in the form of a wampum belt. Uh, now, wampum belts are used by several indigenous peoples in Algonquian nations, meaning Eastern nations in Canada and the United States. And they're made out of quahog shells, which are strung together on bits of string. Now, quahog shells are both white and purple, and the white and purple tones are used to create different patterns, which embody certain legal principles, which a particular political society will put into, um, into practice in their day-to-day -day lives. So, as you can see here, there are two lines that go right down the length of the wampum. Now, what do those two lines mean? Now, they represent a covenant between indigenous peoples and settlers, and you know, specifically the covenant chain of treaties, which exist between the Six Nations, who bartered on behalf of many indigenous nations um, throughout Eastern Canada, and arguably this legal principle is now spread throughout Canada, and it represents a relationship of how white people or settlers in Canada and indigenous peoples are supposed to relate to one another. Essentially, what you see here with these two um, paths is that they are two canoes which travel together down a river. One canoe representing indigenous people and one canoe representing settlers. They coexist and they travel down the river together, but they never interfere with each other. They respect each other's right to exist and they respect each other's right to take sustainably from the land in order to provide for themselves. Again, this is the ideal form of the relationship, but as we have seen more often than not, simply by the invisibility of indigenous peoples in our society, European governance and colonial governance in this country has increasingly grabbed their paddles onto the gunnels of those canoes of indigenous peoples and yanked them off of their path down the river that we should be sharing side by side. Now, another way that this relationship has been put into practice. Now, wampum is a very important legal construct in indigenous communities, but how, are, how is that supposed to be enforced in, in Canada, right? We all, all we have ever seen is, is written laws. Well, it just so happens we do have a written law that um, enshrines this relationship that respects indigenous people's sovereignty. And this is the first document of Canada's constitution, the Royal Proclamation of 1763. In this document, um, it stipulates that the crown, meaning settlers as a political grouping, as a nation, cannot acquire territory from indigenous peoples, from Indian nations, without legal cession, meaning a legal transfer by treaty, um, either a purchase or by conquest during war. And as such, any land that is not covered by a treaty or a purchase is reserved to indigenous peoples. Awesome. Now, mind you, when you look at indigenous communities um, and the amount of land that they still legally hold, that means a good portion of Canada, like nearly half, if not slightly more than half, is essentially unceded territory. It's territory that should legally be owned by indigenous peoples. But also it creates this notion of a fiduciary duty. Now, fiduciary duty is what exists between um, uh, it's essentially a relationship of a guardian and a ward. Now, um, for example, you as parents, um, if for the few of us who are parents uh, in the room, uh, so what is that? a medical?
by your personal choices. You can't just act in your own personal favor. You need to consider that child's interest as you know, the primary element. And that is essentially the same relationship that indigenous peoples see, um, well, again, at least the crown has created um, between Canada and indigenous nations, but also how indigenous peoples see the earth. The earth is in a fiduciary relationship with indigenous peoples and indigenous peoples are essentially to be the guardians over all of the earth. Now that sounds very similar. I'm sure that, 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 that whole notion, the whole notion of guardians over the earth, this is something that for those of us who are very interested in the scripture, that must catch your ears right off the bat. Absolutely it does. And I will get to that in a bit. But first off, um, can anyone think of, and just kind of to dwell on, if you want, you can shout it out, no problem, uh, just to be recording this session. Uh, can any of you think of an important covenant in our faith? This notion of a covenant, this notion of an agreement, has anyone ever heard of that term and, and, and thinks of that as, a, as an important element of our faith? If anyone wants to jump in and suggest something, you're more than welcome to. If not, we can continue. It's the covenant we have with God. Yes, indeed. The covenant we have with God. And now what element does this covenant play in our day-to-day -day lives? Like in, in our Christian life, what is a very important symbolism of covenancy between ourselves and God? Well, the covenant is sacred. It's our sacred, it, re it represents our sacred promise, like God's sacred promise to us. And um, also our, it, it's a reflection of our relationship with God. Exactly, exactly. Both uh, of you are absolutely correct. Can I uh, say something? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Okay, the covenant, according to the Marthama Church, the covenant, uh, the marriage is a covenant when you are a Marthamite. And baptism is a covenant when you are a Marthamite. Taking communion is a covenant when you are a Marthamite. Okay, so all these are covenants according to our Marthama Church. Exactly, thank you, Auntie. That's kind of, that's exactly the, the answer I was looking for. The covenant um, is represented by every sacrament that we take in the church. Yeah. Be it your first communion, every single time you take communion, every marriage, every funeral, every baptism, they are all signs of covenants with God. These are moments where our spiritual relationship is renewed and it's demonstrated with God. You know, we take a public symbol of our of, of our loyalty to God. And that's essentially what a covenant shows. It shows that God has a reciprocal duty to protect us, to nurture us, to guide us, and to provide us the necessary tools for us to be spiritually healthy, you know, to, to, to find our true place in his creation. And it's our duty in return to yield him loyalty, to fight for justice on earth. This is a reciprocal, a reciprocal relationship. And that's exactly what it is. The covenant is a sacred relationship of mutual, um, mutual duty to each other. Um, you know, when, when you pray to God, you are testifying to your covenant with God. It's such an important element of, of our day-to-day -day Christian life. And it is exactly how indigenous peoples relate to the environment around them and relate to um, every single element of, of humanity as well. Now, you know, again, I want you to kind of think about this as we continue to move forward. How well has that standard of treatment been carried out, not only with indigenous peoples, but in our society? How important do we consider sacred covenants? 
you know, and not just religious covenants, but, you know, we, we talk so much about in Western countries, the rule of law and the rule of contracts, the rule of mutual agreements, they're, they're supposed to be the bedrock of, of the entire Western society. And yet, how religiously do we hold to our word? That's something I want you all to think about as we go forward. How religiously do we hold on to our word? How often do we uphold a promise, a verbal promise, a written promise as truth? Something that we stake our honor on, that we stake our spiritual health on. That's something to think about going forward. Now, what that relationship is supposed to look like, again, that's a pretty beautiful idea, the whole notion of coexistence on a, on a set of territory. But the reality looks like these young, innocent faces that you see in front of you. Now, these three young people, these three children are Tina Fontaine, Josiah Begg, and Tammy Kiash. Now, the three uh, Nishinaabek children who died in the past three years in Thunder Bay. And um, it is overwhelming. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence to suggest in, in uh, the trials that led behind each of their deaths and the investigations to suggest that they were murdered by um, white men who with serious histories of violence and, uh, and sexual violence and um, various other forms of racial misconduct and, uh, and, and interpersonal misconduct in their lives. And yet, in all three of these cases, either the investigation simply failed, the police refused to look in any further when, um, you know, in the case of Tammy Kiosh, when um, she was, uh, when it was, you know, reported that she had been, uh, you know, accosted by, uh, by a predator, a known predator in the community. And, um, you know, once, uh, when, when her unfortunate death was reported, um, the police simply refused to consider the notion that um, criminality had anything to play a role in that. Uh, when Tina Fontaine died, um, she was found um, in the uh, in the river in Thunder Bay. When when she was when her when her when her body was discovered, she was a, a young girl, only fifteen years old. Um, the public media focused so much on how she was a troubled child. You know, H how could they talk about this? You know, this is a, this is a minor. She's a she's a small girl. But they focused so much on how she was a troubled child who, who had, you know, so-called, uh, you know, run-ins with the law, interactions with the law, you know, a, a wild streak, these terms that they used to describe her. When, as you can see, this is a picture of her taken not too, not too far before her death. She was a small child. And yet the man who murdered her, who had overwhelming amounts of evidence proving that he murdered her, uh, in addition to eyewitnesses, etc., he was let off. And in fact, his, his own character was, uh, was, was elevated in the, in the space of the court. This is the reality of indigenous governance here. Indigenous peoples are supposed to be treated as our equals in every single way under the law. And let alone adults, let alone adults who are attacked in so many ways by adults, even the most vulnerable peoples of indigenous communities, children are treated with such disdain and treated with such neglect by our government and by our system that these three young people were murdered, they're buried, and they have no justice. This is the truly, you know, it's, it's, it's a truly tragic thing to see, you know, but there's no justice for them. You know, they were acquitted, and these men were all acquitted by all white juries. This was the accepted standard of Canadian government. And and what do their parents have to, 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 
to show for it after all of their their heart their heartbreak and their struggle you know um and the simple reality is that even indigenous children you know children who are supposed to be put on a pedestal and put on um a special protection by our country and by our society not only are they neglected but they're ignored wholeheartedly by our society when it's convenient when the issue of resources and the issue of of actual care comes into play you know this is a this is a problem that underpins everything every every single element of our society um so we you know going forward as well i'm sure you, you guys have heard in the news as of late joyce eshaquan who was uh, she's a young woman from quebec um, she was murdered by two Quebecois nurses. She caught the whole thing on video, how they were talking about, um, you know, and, and, and mocking her and insulting her as she was dying from a lethal morphine overdose that they had, uh, they had administered to her. Now, she caught all this on video in her final moments. And till date, only one of the nurses has even been fired from that institution for murder. This is intentional murder that we have actual evidence of on video. And this is the reality that indigenous people have to face every day. You look over here on the right side of your screen and you see a, a young man here who you know, had gone through several years of, in, of residential schools. This photo is taken from 1896. Now you might think, why do I bring up a photo from nearly 130 years ago? Now, when we look at this photo, we understand just how insidious the educational system has been to indigenous peoples. Even in, in the safety of a school, there is no safety for indigenous peoples. Since the passage of the Indian Act in 1876 till the modern day, you know, this act that governs every single element of indigenous culture, livelihood, indigenous peoples have had their language, their culture, their rights, their religion stripped away from them at every single step in the name of assimilation into European society. This is the reality of what indigenous peoples has to face. Now, again, maybe I'm going out on a limb here to say this, but this is not the standard, according to my personal opinion, of what has been stated in the Tura Wampa, the right of all peoples to govern their education, you know, to, to be able to control the lives of their, their children in the way of their own traditional uh, peoples. This is not the way it's supposed to go forward. You know, despite First Nations being legally entitled by the treaties to roughly 10% of Canada's land area, they only possess 0.02% of that amount. I mean, 0.02% of all 100% of Canada's territory, tiny, tiny minority of that land, even though they should own like a 10% like a share of that land. You know, when we think about, um, I don't know if many of you will remember in 2008, we had um, two ladies in the Malayali community, Mrs. Susan John and Mrs. Susan Malvergis were, were, were murdered in Scarborough uh, by a neighbor. And uh, the man who had murdered them, okay, members of our Malayali community, men who had murdered them had been, you know, kind of uh, treated very leniently by the justice system. And within weeks, we had our Malayali community marching in the streets, hundreds of folks marching in the streets demanding justice and demanding that people who are known with histories of, especially men with histories of violence and sexual assault, not be allowed onto the street and to be, you know, when, when, when murders of women of color are treated with such, uh, you know, such lenience, such a leniency that this sort of behavior has to be um, curbed in our society. And yet, you know, I think a great amount of growth has happened since, since 2008 within our community, but Think about indigenous
indigenous peoples who've been here for thousands of years before us and the, they still don't even have that standard of justice, right? When indigenous peoples have young children who are murdered uh, in the wider society, where are the, you know, only nowadays, only in the past few years have we had big movements to even get their deaths recognized by the government as murder. This is the reality of what the so-called Tura Wampum relationship has, has become in the modern day. It's become a system of deprivation of robbery, you know? Um, you know, I think a lot of you would find it very interesting that, you know, in indigenous communities, the extended kinship relations are very, very similar. You know, aunties, uncles, grandparents, um, you know, it's not just you and your parents, you know, in a Malayali community. I know we've, we've all seen this. Our whole church has played a role. You know, all of us who've grown up here at St. Matt's, I think we all know, you know, we're, we're less friends and more family, you know, because of just the extended network of kinship that we've been raised in. And yet the child welfare system to this day in this country has as a default option, taking indigenous children out of the hands of their families and putting them in white families away from their culture, away from their language um, and exposing them to all different types of, you know, rampant rates of physical, sexual, psychological abuse in the foster care system. Is this justifiable? Is this the society that we as Malayalis want to uphold as, as an ideal? I would say no. I would say probably no. You know, and, and, and as a result, let's kind of dwell upon that as well from everything we know and understand about Malayali Christian culture, you know, the prioritization of good education, the prioritization of, you know, presences in the healthcare, getting good healthcare, being part of the healthcare system, you know, taking as part of our Christian mission, our duty to provide adequate healthcare to people. This is the system that we're living in. There's a huge underbelly of injustice. I know we're all very thankful to live in Canada where we have so much, so much, just in general, so much. And yet for the people whose land is, all of this, is, they, you know, it still rightfully belongs to them. Even this bare standard of care is something that is still so far away from their daily reality, right? So I, I, I want you guys to think about that going forward. What would the repercussions be if this were to happen to our community? How would we feel? How would we feel going forward? So for us to understand how indigenous peoples and Westerners kind of interact, I think it's also vitally important for us to discuss how indigenous and Western knowledge exists. So in Western knowledge, um, you know, we, we understand what the West is simply because we live in this, right? Nature is a very orderly, scientific, single objective empirical reality, you know, that's graspable and understandable by humans. So humans are the sort of objective observers of nature, you know? We have the faculty of reason, you know, all of these things that the Western world has, has, has emphasized quite a lot. You know, we have um, the ability of industry, the ability of technology, the ability to create complex societies that can completely change our natural environments. That is what underpins Western knowledge, right? This whole notion that humans are the center of society. I mean, many, many people who live in Western society obviously do believe that there is God higher above, but they separate God from the way they approach their day-to-day, -day, you know? Everyone compartmentalizes their religion into a private part of their lives, which is, again, you know, it's their own way of interpreting the world. But fundamentally in our society, humans are the center of the entire society to the detriment of animals, the natural world, um, the entirety of the environment, and indeed our spiritual health. And, you know, the Western world is focused on growth, on change, on development. 
We're constantly growing, constantly trying to do better than what we had in the past. And we're trying to develop the natural world into something that is refined, something that is, that is packaged and processed. And there is, of course, the great emphasis on, on individualism. Freedom is interpreted as, you know, political freedom, as the ability to walk down the street and do whatever you want with your life, right? This is kind of the foundation, the bedrock of, of what we know as the democratic world of the, of the West. And yet let's look at indigenous communities. Indigenous peoples believe instead of, you know, human beings as separate, you know, human society is separate from the earth. Indigenous peoples believe that they are inherently what is called tied to place. Indigenous peoples, indigenous communities are connected to their homelands in a very intimate way. As I mentioned before, the land owns them. They don't own the land, the land owns them. You know, and uh, as, as you can see in, in a lot of the nationalist discourse in India, you know, back home, people talk so much about, you know, the motherland, you know, the term matrabhumi. If we look at this concept, matrabhumi, it's a parental relationship that we have with our ancestral territory. You know, uh, indigenous people often discuss this concept of the earth is, is red. You know, there is this concept in, in, in European culture that indigenous peoples are red peoples, right? But the whole concept of redness has been so spread now in indigenous politics as a concept that connects indigenous people's blood, their, their skin, the very fabric of their being to the earth from which they come. You know, the, the Turtle Island territories, meaning all of North America, uh, in, in many indigenous communities referred to as Turtle Island from the notion that um, also very common with Hindu mythology, that the earth is constructed on the back of a giant cosmic turtle. It's a really interesting connection between us and indigenous peoples here. But again, if you look at traditional societies in India, you know, people who still practice very ancestral ways of living, Adivasi communities, for example, um, and indigenous peoples here, they still connect to the land in a lot of very crucial ways. They acknowledge the spirituality of the trees. They acknowledge that every single rock, every single tree in creation has its role to play that is ordained by the creator in heaven. You know, earth is the center of society in indigenous knowledge, not human beings. Humans are one society that exists within creation. Every single animal uh, species, every single species of plant, every single tiny little genus. In indigenous cultures, the entirety of life is perceived as one great big family with smaller clans and smaller families, um, you know, where humans and primates and, and uh, plants and uh, elephants and every other type of, of living being falls within their own family, but they're all connected to one another. They acknowledge that you know, in, as we know from scientific knowledge, all life originates from the same single cell organism. And because that exists, indigenous peoples believe that since the millions of years that, that since that has happened, all life is spiritually connected. Now, why am I teaching you all of this indigenous spirituality? What connection does that have to our faith? Well, listen to what those words say. All of that life comes from the same place, the same nebulous origin that we understand in indigenous indigenous peoples and, and us, we conceive of the world in a very, in, in similar ways, but we use different languages for it. 
And as I'll discuss later on, this is this is sort of an elemental part of how indigenous peoples perceive the world. You know, certain certain knowledge um, that they have, uh, it's simply a reinterpretation of the same facts that we see. You know, certain knowledge at the same time goes beyond human comprehension. You know, this there are certain elements of knowledge that that exist in the spiritual realm, and the notion that science and spirituality are necessarily separate is not true in indigenous communities. You know, law, politics, economics, environmental relations, these things are all intimately connected in indigenous societies in the form of this, this entity called legal orders, as you guys will, may remember that I mentioned earlier on. Now, this allows for the very center of indigenous society to be focused on the preservation, the ecology and the balance of nature with human society and understanding that human society is part of nature. And conversely to Western knowledge that focuses on the individual and individual desires and needs. There is an emphasis on collective responsibility, familial responsibility, clan-based responsibility that exists in indigenous societies. And I know as all of you will understand from our own Malayali roots in Kerala, this is exactly how we conceive of our society too. Our connection to our parents, our grandparents, our extended kinship, our clan, our, our community, our nation. This is something that understands that, yes, the individual is important, but there is a linkage to the rest of creation, the rest of humanity. There is a responsibility that you have to the rest of creation that is ordained to you by God, written in the scriptures. And indigenous peoples have a very similar way of relating to the earth and relating to each other and relating to the animals and to the plant life that exists all around them. So as we go forward again, we want to, we, we want to compare the way indigenous peoples perceive the world. You know, the, the, the notion that West, the West is so focused on time. There is a linearity of time. History is something that exists in the past. The future is the future and the present is the present. But indigenous peoples, Indian culture, also believes in the notion that history and the future are connected. The, the past is essentially the linkage between the history and the future. Again, reinterpreting the notion of time, right? When we understand how, how God is, has created the earth, when we, it, you know, it's erroneous of us, it's written in the scriptures as well, it's erroneous of us to consider the beginning as something in time, just somewhere in the past, and the end as a point in time. Because before the beginning, there was God. And after the end, there will be God. God has, you know, God as a principle in our faith goes beyond the confines of space and time. There is nowhere that God is. God is everywhere. But God is also in the everywhere that is beyond everywhere. Sounds pretty crazy, right? Sounds pretty crazy of us to think about that. But when we we understand how indigenous peoples conceive of the relationship of the creator, the relationship of the great spirit to the earth. It's that the world exists in a relationship with the creator that expands far beyond even what we're capable of knowing. You know, that, that, you know, knowledge is something that expands far beyond even our limited human realm. And as a result, the way indigenous peoples relate to knowledge is that is it's holistic, it's cyclical, it's, it's dependent on the relationships, the connections with the world around you, and most importantly, how you relate to the world around you. Your culture, 
your gender, your, your race, your, your language. All of these things are limitations or are particular takes on how you relate to the world. And that's something that's very important about indigenous culture that you, you, you center the earth and the relationships that you have with everything that is on the earth in how you create and understand knowledge. You know, as Western knowledge puts nature in a subservient position, indigenous people center nature at the very center of the world. You know, there is an active relationship of protections between humans and the natural world. There is a concept of, I would go so far as to say stewardship that exists between indigenous peoples and the land on which they live. It's a very powerful relationship. Because we often, you know, in, in our understanding of ourselves as sinful creatures that exist on this earth, we fall into the trap of putting ourselves in the Eden narrative and dwelling so much on the forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve had bitten into. We, under, we understand ourselves as powerless. We are powerless, yes. We are powerless against the forces of sin. But what we need to understand is that we have power. We have immense power, destructive power that wields itself against the world. When human beings decide to set up a factory, when we clear cut a forest and, and erect a factory that poisons the water and poisons the earth and kills animals, we are exerting power. Power that should be yielded in service to God, in service to creation. In stewardship over and guardianship over creation, we yield that power every day. What is the fruit? You know, thinking back to the narrative of Eden, what is the fruit? Does anyone remember? What, is, what, what does the fruit represent that Adam and Eve bit into? Does anyone want to shout that out? What does that fruit represent? Evil. Darkness. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Roshni. The knowledge of good and evil. That is what this point is. And what, what many in the, in the movement of stewardship theology um, would have you believe and would have you attempt to try and internalize is perhaps the development of the very complex and, and very advanced progressive technological modern society that we have it is all great. But it stems fundamentally from the same thinking that originated from the bite into that faded fruit. This notion that we as a, as a human race can, uh, can use and abuse the resources of the earth for our own personal purposes. That is what, 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 what comes from this concept of eating the forbidden fruit, from having that knowledge, from having reason that allows us to think far beyond the confines of the earth and allows us to think that we are above the earth. Because again, what is written in the Bible is not that we are above the earth, but that we are here on the earth and we are here as members of the earth, guarding over the earth for God. And yet, where is that philosophy in our day-to-day -day lives? We talk so much about bringing Christian principles to government. Well, the very first thing that God requested to human beings, the very first thing that he told to Adam was, be fruitful and multiply. 
I put you in this garden to keep it and to take care of it. The first thing God instructed us was to take care of creation. And look at the world around you. Look at the coronavirus that's ravaging the earth, claiming over a million lives, 38.5 million cases worldwide. Is that evidence of us taking care of the earth? That we have now created an earth with pathogens and viruses so out of control because of our lack of symbiotic relationship with the earth, that we are, instead of having this conversation face-to-face, are now talking through through, through mechanical boxes to each other. It's pretty crazy when we think about it. How we, we, we think of ourselves as, we understand of ourselves as sinners. But in our conception of sin, we fail to acknowledge the, one of the most crucial sins that our human society has committed. And it's disrespect for creation itself. We understand that abusing our bodies with, um, with dangerous drugs you know, is, 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 um, is something that profanes our bodies as temples of, of, of God, correct? Well, God provides us a temple. You know, a temple of millions of square kilometers of beautiful expanses. And how have we treated it? When you look in our oceans, is that stewardship? When we see islands, whole countries worth of islands, some countries are bigger than the island of trash that is floating in the Pacific Ocean. And we want to talk about the sin that exists in our society. Forget within our society, within, outside of our society, we can't even control the endless rampages of sin, of excessive consumption, of gluttony. We've never been able to even grasp that. And that's... That's a crazy thing when you think about it, you know, our inability to connect in that way. And yet indigenous peoples have a particular philosophy known as the seven generations philosophy. Particularly, this comes from Anishinaabe culture, which means uh, the peoples of um, northern Manitoba, most of Ontario and parts of Quebec, and little bits of northern United States. But they believe, for example, that into the constitutions of indigenous governments. Every single decision that is made today has to consider the interests of the next seven generations in advance. How many times do we think about, forget seven generations, how many times do we think in our day-to-day processes, what is going to happen if we do this for the next generation? I mean, even us ourselves, without pointing the finger at society, how many times do we think before we make a decision that what will my children look at me and say? What will my children look at me and say? What is the example that I'm providing to them? You know, we talk so much, again, about the the relationship of sin, you know, and our necessity to rely on Christ and to rely on the gospel to relieve us from our sins. Well, let me remind you all, of the Ten Commandments, there is a commandment within there that says, honor your mother and your father. It's interesting. You know, we, 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 we think that's only in the sense of respecting our parents. But are we honoring our father in heaven? Do we honor him every day with every single thing that we do? Do we honor the motherland 
who we walk on every day, not only our motherland back in the old country, but this motherland here too. Do we honor it every day that we walk? You know, I've been told several times by people that, you know, the Ten Commandments are very easy rules to follow. You know, they're very simple. They're very simple rules. And yet they're the most difficult things to follow. Every single one of us will violate each and every single one of the Ten Commandments at least once in our lives. In some way that you may not think. You may think, how may I, you know, commit adultery in my life? You know, I've never, you know, committed a, a violation of, of a marital relationship. But you look on someone with lust and Jesus says that that in and of itself is, a, is, is spiritual adultery. You know, we look upon other people with hatred and violence and we say, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a good sinless person because I've never killed anybody. You're committing spiritual violence against them by wishing, by wishing violence against them. And then you call yourself nonviolent. Right. We have to really understand how intimate the relationship of sin is when it comes to even something as basic as our ecological relations with the earth on which we live. Are we honoring our mother and our father? Something to, something to think about going forward. Now, how do these elements necessarily connect to the Christian faith? We've discussed this a little bit now, but we have to understand one thing about indigenous relations, that all relationships are two-headed two arrows. Meaning every single relationship is built on relationality and reciprocity, meaning there is a mutuality that has to be given. Uh, for example, when I work with indigenous communities and I bring, for example, supplies to a camp for a protest, or um, perhaps uh, you come to bring, um, you know, important news that a nation will need in a, uh, in a legal battle that they will be having with the courts in, over a piece of territory. When you bring something, you will find that they often give you a gift in return. In fact, it is more often than not, they will give you a gift in return. Even if it's something as simple as a small pouch of tobacco, if it's something as food and drink for your journey back home, a gift is provided to you because indigenous peoples understand that all relationships are two-way streets. And think about how we even approach our relationship with God on that level, you know? How many times do we ignore God every single day? You know, how many things come up in our lives and we just, we, we, don't, we don't make time for prayer. We don't make time for reading the scriptures. We don't make time to take care of our, our, our earth. We don't take, make time to take care of our families. But when something goes wrong, we fall to our knees and we pray up to heaven. And we just demand things from God. Does that sound like a covenantal relationship to you? Or is that a relationship of sin? We expect a God to pave the way for us, right? In, in our lives, pave the way, the righteous way. Perhaps not the way free of, of trouble, but a way that is, that, is, that is peaceful for our hearts. And then we fail to understand that the lack of peace in our hearts comes from abusing creation, abusing our fellow human beings, abusing the animals, abusing the plants, abusing the earth. And again, this points right back to uh, the word of God. You know, would someone, for example, if anyone's got a Bible on hand, would someone please uh, read for us Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26. 
Does anyone have a Bible? I've got it. Genesis 1, chapter 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. I can also try and... Sorry, yes? Sorry, Mike, could you, could you repeat that one more time? Sorry. Uh, and God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Now, what exactly does that mean? Now, in Western culture, we have often had this interpreted to mean that, you know, dominion. What, what does the word dominion mean? Dominion is often a word that is used by a monarch to relate to a monarchical realm. You know? So a king, what would the power that a king has is absolute over a territory. And this it's one of those lovely instances of a poor, faulty translation that exists in virtually every Bible in the West. Dominion, I grant you dominion over the things of the earth and the things of the sky. Now, what if I were to tell you that in the original Hebrew, the word dominion is more accurately understood as stewardship. It is control, it is guardianship. Now, doesn't that completely reevaluate that entire phrase. You know, I give you stewardship over the animals of the earth. I give you guardianship over the birds of the sky. I give you guardianship over every single thing that moves on the earth. All of a sudden, do you know what we suddenly get? We get a duty, a fiduciary duty to each and every single thing that walks on the earth to everything that exists in the natural, in the natural sphere. That's our, our, our fiduciary duty towards all of it. You know, um, that, is, that is just something so powerful for us to understand about our relationship. We think about, you know, human beings being endowed with reason so that we can, we can have supremacy over the earth, but that's not, that's not what the meaning of the gospel is. That's not what the meaning of the Bible is. It's that the mandate that is provided here, the creation mandate, as it's, as it's called in theological circles, tells us to protect the earth, to protect all of these things, and to provide sustainability for the coming generation. Be, be fruit, fruitful and multiply. Why do you be fruitful and multiply? If you only have two generations that come after you because you've wasted all the resources of the earth, how are you multiplying? How are you honoring God's promise? To be fruitful and to multiply is to preserve the necessary resources, to preserve the necessary healthy environment that our children and our children's children and seven generations of the coming children will need. And again, you can see this, it's very present in indigenous culture. I mean, many, many things are very similar in indigenous culture. You know, the, the way that indigenous people relate to the sun and the moon and the earth and the sky, um, the similar treatment of medicines, how indigenous people smudge and how we use incense in our church is very similar the mythology of the cosmic turtle, the notion of the great flood, which I will discuss in a little bit, the, the, the great spirit, Ichemanitu, and the God of the Bible, you know, from whom all things, all lesser beings, all the angels and the spirits and the animals and matter come, come from and to whom they return. 
and with whom they are always permanently linked. These things are, are almost identical to the, the way traditional Orthodox Christians relate to the theology of God, the theological construction of God. And so when we understand, you know, we, we as Christians have often fallen prey to the narrative of white supremacy, that Christianity is this tool of European culture, is this tool of colonization, is this tool of enslavement. Well, where is the evidence for that? We crack open the scriptures and there's not a single element of that. If anything, the message of the gospels, the, the creation mandates, the labor mandates that, that God provided in the time of Genesis all the way to the time of the gospel till today have endorsed wholeheartedly the notion that indigenous peoples protect Eden. The last bit of Eden as we know it, despite the corruptions of so-called modern civilization, so-called Western civilization, so-called civilization in and of itself, Indigenous peoples preserve the authentic way of relating with humanity and relating with all members of human and non-human society that God had ordained in the time of Eden. And yet, we live in a society that persecutes them and treats them like they're backward and inferior. These people, Indigenous peoples around the world, are the only communities who take the stewardship mandate seriously. The only nations throughout all of the world, indigenous peoples only 5% of the global population yet present 80% of the global biodiversity and preserve 80% of the global biodiversity. 5% of these people protect 80% of the global bioculture. And it has been our, our brainwashed belief perhaps that convinces us that these people are not practicing the way of Christ, that they're not practicing the way of the gospel because of ephemeral differences. And yet we see the indigenous peoples actively taking the stewardship mandate and making it the cornerstone of their cultures, of their legal system. Now, as we go forward, Let's also look um, if, if someone, um, mom, if you'd like to read your, your, your again, if you, if you still have the Bible on you, uh, Genesis chapter two, verse 15, that would be great. Uh, or, or honestly, if anyone wants to jump in. Do you want me to do it? I, I have yeah, it. for sure. Okay, so Genesis two, um, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Absolutely. Thank you. Again, we challenge the notion of human supremacy. Um, I'm sure some of you have heard this whole notion of becoming lords on the earth, right? Um, you may have heard about this, you know, that the, that the, that the proud, you know, the proud and the prideful and the haughty of, of uh, humanity, they have this practice of trying to make themselves lords on the earth, as opposed to honoring the Lord in heaven. You know, again, we see in Genesis 2.15 that man, that God makes man not simply because he wants to, but because he, he, he gave us in the primordial days of creation, a mandate to look after the earth and work it and protect it. This is the, the, the overarching theme throughout Genesis. 
the, necess the necessity of guardianship, the necessity of protection of all that is good and that is holy in the world. You know, um, this is something that connects very closely to indigenous communities as well. This, this notion that again, the land in and of itself is alive. This is a concept known as place thought in, in English, um, but it, 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 it's a, a, a system that is very common throughout indigenous communities. Um, this notion that humans get their agency from the natural world, that, that we are not uniquely endowed, you know, but that God's, you know, God's power came, came through creation and into us. And now this is biblically backed up as well. Do we all remember how Adam was first formed? You know, we all remember, of course, everyone remembers the story of Eve being formed out of one of the ribs of Adam, right? But do we remember how Adam was formed? Adam is clay from the earth. God created the heavens and the earth right from the outset. God created his domain and God created the natural world. And his power flowed through the earth and created Adam. This is written right there in, in, in the scripture. And it's what indigenous peoples have been trying to tell our humanity for millennia now, centuries upon centuries. You know, this, this notion that the environment is something that is alive. It's not that there is life teeming throughout the earth, but that the earth itself is alive as well. There is a spirit that flows through the earth. And where do we understand that within the realm of the, of the scripture? It's the notion of the Holy Spirit. Paul discusses the Holy Spirit as a force which interpenetrates all things in creation. Every single one of us, believing in Christ or not, has part of the Holy Spirit within us. And by accepting Christ and by, by following the gospel, we acknowledge the presence of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. And we acknowledge the presence of the Holy Spirit on our lives. And we, 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 take, we undertake essentially the, the desire to bring out the Holy Spirit in every single person around us. You know? Again, as I mentioned before, this is very similar to this, this concept of, of uh, you know, the, this maternal-paternal relationship with our land. You know? Adam is truly the child of the earth through God. You know, and this is something that separated by thousands and thousands of kilometers have arrived at the same divine truth that all things come from God. And our duty as human beings, our primary duty is to ensure that this beautiful world around us survives. Now, Many, uh, both indigenous and non-indigenous scholars discuss the way that these two forms of knowledge interact with each other as the universe and the pluriverse. Now, when you look at the concept of the universe, this is how the West conceives of the world, that there is a single objective truth, that there is a separation between nature and culture. You know, the environment exists in some abstract space outside of human society and is and we are uniquely qualified to observe it, to categorize it and to and to, uh, you know, provide all of these these things. Now, the degree of observation and categorization, absolutely. God provides us that that instruction right at the beginning of creation, you know, to name, uh, you know, to 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 follow and to uh, and to and to um, 
to interact with each of the animals of the earth. But understanding where we are understands that we too fall amongst them. You know, recognizing as a result that who we are, what we are, we are limited by our very nature. We cannot pretend to be God and have the omnipotence or, or the arrogance to think that our version of the world is the, is the truth, is the singular soul truth. Because truth is known only to God. We understand it in some way by being exposed to the gospel, by being exposed to the scriptures. But the objectivity of truth lies only with God. And it is thus up to us to understand that we as humans, as the imperfect creation, as the fallen creation of God, we have certain limitations on our vision. You look out onto the world today and you see human beings with every other type of arrogance, assuming that we know everything about humanity. We know everything about the earth. We know everything. We know everything. We have all the answers. And yet how much do we really know? truly able to avert. Again, coronavirus, we, we have played around, we have tried so many things in our world, and yet for all of our discovery, we have realized that a, something that is not even visible can cripple our society and claim millions of the lives of our fellow people. If that doesn't remind us, if that, again, call me crazy if you want, but if that doesn't remind us what God's true power really is on our lives, what we can see in the world around us and our reminder to slow down and to respect and to honor creation as an integral part of the law of God, the law of Christ. I think we do ourselves a bit of a disservice. So for us to understand again, what this means, how, how, how can two different people look at the same uh, event and understand it in two different ways? I will point you once again to the Bible. The great flood is, is described, um, you know, something that Noah and his family have to go through uh, in Genesis chapter six, verse nine, and, uh, and up, right up until chapter nine, verse 17. Now I won't have you read it all, but quick summary. At the end of the last ice age in 10,000 BC, uh, we, we know for a fact, there were numerous events of serious flooding and localized extinction events in various locations throughout the world as the temperatures, you know, rapidly thawed, rapidly changed. And we have the scientific fact to objectively prove this. Now, a lot of people, again, uh, a lot of people will criticize, um, you know, the book of Genesis for not being the direct factual truth when measured against a scientific standard. Fair enough. That's absolutely true. But if we understand the way that humanity all kind of originates in this, in this story, in this structure, we understand that there are scientific parallels that exist to every single thing that, that is, is written in the Bible. We understand that the, the 40 rains and the 40 nights is a metaphorical term because these things did happen. You know, we, the Bible understands that a flood exists. And again, it, it, it occurs simply in, in a time of, you know, long before scientific observation, people understood this. They saw what was happening around them. They documented it in the best way that they understood. But they understood God's power within the limitations of human words, you know. And a very interesting connection, many indigenous cultures in Turtle Island also understand and practice the notion of a, of a worldwide flood. 
and the notion of the earth re-emerging from the water as an integral part of their creation story, not least of whom are the Anishinaabeg people of, um, of Ontario. So science essentially, we should understand that Western science is not wrong. I'm not here to tell you that Western science isn't wrong. Forget about the theory of evolution. Absolutely not. Obviously, I believe in all these things. But what I'm telling you is, is that what indigenous peoples can provide to us in our day-to-day -day lives is, is understanding that science provides us the facts to understand with exactly what happened, the, the construction of each of these events and how they happened. But what our faith provides us, what indigenous spirituality provides us, what indigenous knowledge provides us, is understanding the moral lessons as to why it happened. Why did God provide this flood all over the earth? Well, to teach us a lesson, of course, to put us into our place and to remind us that we are but humble creatures on this earth. Why do you think that Noah had to take two of every single creature on earth and bring them onto this boat? Well, God essentially created this moment to remind him that you are but one of all of the many species of the earth. That is what the narrative of the great flood is, is there to remind us that we are but one of the many species of this earth. And we are just as fleeting, just as fragile as every one of them. And it is our duty, it is humanity's duty to build an ark and to protect, protect every single species, every single plant, every single animal from the devastation that the world is capable of and the devastation that we are capable of. What did Noah do on that ark? He engaged in stewardship over each and every single one of the species of the earth. And that is what we need to do going forward. You know, again, you can see this, uh, another great example, which I, I encourage you all to look into, um, the notion of mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam, you know, the matrilineal and petrilineal ancestors, uh, the most recent ancestors of all humans. We can trace them back to, you know, a hypothetical one human, one man and one woman that spawned the entirety of humanity. There's a brilliance there, you know, that, that, our, that our ancestors understood that, you know, again, they were trying to convey it to us through, you know, the, the words and the means that only, you know, that, that they had at their disposal for us to all understand that all of us, all of us living things on this earth, we are one with our earth and we are all one with each other. We're all connected. We all come from the same place. We all come from the same God. This is the simple reality. Now, again, finally, to wrap us up, let's understand now this concept of the new earth. Now, why do we care about the Garden of Eden? I mean, it fell, right? It fell, it, it fell apart. But what do we understand of where the future is supposed to go? In Revelation chapter 21, verse one, it states that in the world to come, Eden will be restored. Eden will be restored. The authentic expression of humanity will be restored in a place where there is no more environmental de devastation. There's no economic injustice. There is, call it utopia if you want, but that's what paradise is supposed to be. The kingdom of heaven on earth is supposed to restore Eden to what it was supposed to be. And so when we look at this, this concept that you see on your screen, you see two uh, Hebrew terms here, olam haba. Is a is a Jewish term. It's a Hebrew term from the uh, from the from the uh, from the Torah, which describes the world to come. 
and it understands again this this related connection you see this uh, this arrow term tikkun olam tikkun olam in hebrew means the restoration of the world the repairing of the world and it is essentially the notion in the jewish faith that teaches um, that teaches people that in order to pave the way for the world to come we must enact the restoration we can't just wait for god to come and, and save us God has done his part of the covenant by guiding us down the righteous path each and every single day. Now it is time for us to show whether or not we are worthy by upholding the creation mandate, by upholding the law of God, by upholding the law of Christ. And it is said, it is written in the gospel that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light on a hill that shines for all the people. And that light on the hill that we work towards, well, the gospel is the torch. The gospel is the torch that leads us to that light. The light at the end of the tunnel. The famous light at the end of the tunnel. But what that light is, is our necessity to restore the earth to what it is supposed to be. To, uh, to achieve equilibrium, to achieve harmony with our earth. That is what is necessary. It is an integral part of us bringing the world to come. So... For us to understand that, for us to, you know, go forward into the world and to, you know, and to, and to engage in a righteous lifestyle, we have to understand that we can't have the world to come unless we honor the very first commitment that God provided humanity. You know, just like, right here, like what I've written on my screen, white supremacy is often portrayed in indigenous peoples as outside of humanity to justify colonization, resource theft. And yet look at our society. Is this a Christian society in which we live? Poverty on every corner? A tiny cabal of wealthy individuals controlling the vast majority of global wealth? Is this the world that, 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 that Jesus foretold? Is this the kingdom of God? I would say no. And before we assume that Jesus is going to ride that donkey back into our into our Jerusalem, we have to make Jerusalem out here, don't we? We have to get the palm leaves, we have to toss them down, and we have to prepare the, prepare the way for the king. And I'll say this much, it's quite hard to, to toss down the palm leaves when there are no palm trees left. So going forward out into the world, I want us to, again, draw upon this, this, this notion of the first instruction that God gave to us and really rethink about what indigenous they are and what role that they can play in the society of the restoration of the kingdom of God, you know? And before we, we switch on to the, to, as we wrap up our session here, I want you to, 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 bring, to bring to attention these two symbols on your screen. Now, of course, on the left, I'm sure many of you know what the symbol is. It's the Nasrani Menorah or the St. Thomas Cross. And it is a symbol of, uh, of the church, of the St. Thomas Christian community, right? And on the right, we see the cross as depicted as the tree of life, you know? For example, we have, we have come to know through historical scholarship now that it is very possible that the, the, the cross that Jesus was crucified on was a living tree. Quite a powerful statement, you know? That the son of man died on a living tree and rose and conquered death quite a powerful statement about what life is. And again, look at our famous Martha Masliba cross right here, right? 
if you look at the cross, each of the ends of the cross, and this is something from church history. I don't know if y'all will remember this, but I remember this very, very clearly just because this is something that's always stuck very, very firmly in my head. But each of the ends of the cross are flowers. If you look at the three little, little uh, bulbs, they represent flowers. This is the living cross. There's a reason why, why Jesus is not on this cross. is because this is the resurrected cross. We, we understand. forget that since Jesus has been resurrected, death is overcome. Death is overcome. The gospel provides us the tools to overcome death. Isn't that crazy? We have new life through Jesus, and that is what the living tree of resurrection, the, the tree upon which Jesus gave his life for all of us, represents. We see the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, one of the very same animals that we are supposed to be having an, an instance of stewardship with. The cross itself emerges from a set of lotus leaves representing the earth from which the tree of life springs. The very notion of stewardship is built into the symbol of our faith, built into the symbol of our community. So going forward, why don't we try to embrace those principles in our everyday lives and understand that our preparation for the kingdom to come starts with the very earth that we walk on. Well, first off, I want to thank everyone for uh, being here and being part of this, uh, being part of this little get together here. Um, I'm always very glad to have this opportunity to share with you guys. But um, without providing, I don't know, specific, uh, I have a couple specific questions and we can get to them. But, I, but just before uh, we wrap up, just because I know at five o'clock, we've got the prayer meeting with the youth group. So I, I want to be able to provide you guys some time to, to leave for that as well. Um, but just to let you know, so uh, I was just recently there. So, uh, you know, obviously it's something fresh on my mind, but the Six Nations Confederacy, the very same nation um, at Oshwagen. Um, the Iroquois people who have uh, engaged in the Turo Wampum Treaty, um, they are to this day attempting to protect their lands from, uh, from the um, a brand new housing development project uh, in and around the town of Caledonia. Uh, it's a demonstration called 1492 Land Back Lane, and they've reoccupied that land, and they are... Um, uh, you know, there is an injunction been served by the provincial courts that are trying to force them off. But again, they're they're out there agitating for the uh, for the environmental protection of these very sensitive lands. And um, if you're interested in donating, I, I really do strongly recommend it. Uh, a lot of folks have been arrested on little to no substantive charges. Um, the the demonstration till this point has been entirely peaceful, and yet um, there are always these instances where uh, people are leaving the demonstration long after the fact and get picked up by the police at night. This is the simple reality of the state of justice we have here. So um, I strongly do recommend everyone, please, if you can offer any money to uh, the 1492 Land Back Lane Legal Fund, I would totally uh, recommend that. Spignacatic uh, lobster fishery, which um, has been put forward by the Mi'kmaq Nation along the um, Nova Scotia coast, has suffered several weeks at this point of um, white corporate fishermen forming mobs to attack, threaten, and vandalize Mi'kmaq fishermen who possess only 250 traps and yet are being accused of ruining the fishery. Um, as opposed to the white fishermen who have 300,000 traps. 
So again, this is one of those instances where, you know, a very loose justification can be used to exact great violence on indigenous peoples. Um, and, you know, the RCMP has done very little to act actually substantively do anything about it. So um, as we will be posting this information in the uh, Facebook group, please do um, click on the Google Drive as well. There's a whole bunch of resources there, both in terms of information and donations for legal funds, uh, food, water, and medical supplies for folks who have been injured. Um, or, uh, you know, again, pre preventative measures against further injuries. And uh, we also have three other causes, um, both the Musant Moratorium in the Ottawa Valley um, that the Algonquin are presenting against the government, along with the Wet'suwet'en Nation's defense against the coastal gas link oil and gas pipeline, which is being built on territories that they never signed over, along with the Shuapam Nation's uh, Tiny House Warriors Women's Camp, which is lying in the way of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is being also built on land stolen from them. Those two cases both being out in BC. Now, uh, if we'd like to use a, the last few minutes, um, uh, if we can turn off the recording, uh, we can, uh, you know, I, I would 